Hear that? It's the sound of you catching up on all the latest and greatest fintech news, trends, and updates thanks to Streetworthy, Yield Street's bi-weekly newsletter. Stay in the know with CEO Melinda Mahiri as he takes a closer look at what's happening in the fintech space, then breaks down what each story could mean for investors like you. Give your portfolio the edge it deserves and subscribe to Streetworthy on LinkedIn today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Yield. Make sure to subscribe to the show and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube, and leave a review if you're enjoying the content. In case we haven't met before, I'm your host, Peter Kerr. I'm the Senior Director of Product Marketing here at Yieldtree. Today, I'm joined by Sam Rowe, founder of Ticker, an online news and data newsletter that outlines long-term themes in the context of the markets and the economy. Sam, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to get going. Lots going on with the markets here. Um, you know, certainly as we sit here today, fairly important day as the Fed is set to uh, conclude their two-day meeting and release some really important projections and also policy. Um, but before we get going on that, maybe you can walk everyone through a little bit about your background and sort of how you got to Ticker and really what you guys try to accomplish. Sure, sure. Um, so yeah, quick background. Um, I got into this business about 15 years ago uh, at Forbes. I worked for uh, two stock-picking newsletters that they published in-house. And uh, I was there for about five years where I also, you know, concurrently worked on the CFA program and earned my CFA charter. Uh, from there, I ended up at Business Insider where I oversaw the site's coverage of global financial markets. Uh, did that for about five years and then from there went to Yahoo Finance in 2016 uh, where I was their managing editor until about 2021. Uh, I had a brief stint at Axios where I wrote the Axios Markets newsletter. And uh, a couple months after that, uh, I saw this opportunity to start my own paid subscription newsletter uh, on the Substack platform. And I've been doing that for the past eight months. Very cool. Um, you know, certainly I think most folks, uh, especially those that don't have access to some of the, um, you know, proprietary, um, you know, market data services really benefit from uh, just some expertise and context. Um, and certainly it feels like right now, uh, for the first time in what feels like a very long time, it seems like uncertainty and direction of where things go um, really feels different, right? At least during COVID. Yeah. Uh, it happened so quickly. Yeah. And the recovery especially in terms of Fed actions and what the, uh, you know, the coordination amongst the U.S. government was, was very quick, at least as the markets were, were uh, concerned. This one feels a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot more tension and, it's, and everything, every piece of data you get, every sort of market response, every sort of Fed reaction, uh, sort of like the consequences and the implications are a lot more ambiguous. Like when you have, you know, COVID, the onset of COVID, everyone knew this is bad. This is bad for the economy and we need help from either policymakers or something. And so there was a broad agreement there and you get stimulus very quickly, right? Right now we have like all this push and pull between, you know, the economy's growing, but we don't want to go into a recession, but inflation's high, so we got to do something about that. So what can we do about that? Well, we have to slow the economy. Well, do we really want a slower economy at the cost of, uh, or, or do we want to, uh, uh, risk slowing the economy and, and sending it into recession uh, just for the sake of cooling inflation. So, so it's right now. It's everything is just very confusing and convoluted because you know good news is bad news and bad news is good news. Good news about the economy is bad news for inflation. Bad news about the economy is good news for inflation. So, how do you make sense of all of this? Um, and frankly, uh, the answer is you just don't know. 
I mean, you know, uncertainty. Great insight. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, sometimes uh, you, when you try to put all this stuff into context and, and unpack it and make sense of it, um, you know, you can always sort of lean towards some sort of conclusion of, you know, uh, this is actually overall good. Um, but in the near term, um, especially with, you know, inflation continuing to surprise to the upside, um, you know, it starts to make you worried about, you know, if the medicine for this is actually working. Um, and so that remains an unanswered question. So we have uncertainty high, uncertainty premium high, and then, you know, uh, uh, the, it prices into risk assets and, and that prices fall. Yeah, and, you know, I, I want to spend a lot of time, um, you know, certainly talking about, um, you know, where we think things go from here, but maybe it's worthwhile taking a step back and also maybe, our, you know, walk us through a little bit about what's gone on over the last six, 12 months or so. Yeah. Uh, that's sort of gotten to this point here as we sit here in the middle of June. Yeah, I mean, so I think there's two gigantic parts of the story, and, you know, it's economics 101, right? It's There's a demand story and there's a supply story. The demand side of the story is millions and millions of jobs have been created and recovered um, since the low point in the COVID uh, downturn. Um, you know, we've even created over 2 million jobs since the beginning of the year. The job market is still red hot. There might be some deceleration, but you're still creating hundreds of thousands of jobs. This is putting a lot of people back to work. It's putting a lot of money into people's pockets, and that's a lot of spending power, and that's a lot of consumption. That's why we have stuff like retail sales and personal consumption expenditures at record highs. So there's a lot of shopping. People want to buy a lot of stuff. The problem is on the supply side. Supply is just not keeping up. So there's enough supply that we're having record levels of GDP and record levels of spending, um, but there is enough of a lag in terms of supply chains and, and inventories and stuff that um, there's just not enough stuff. There's not enough seats on airplanes. There's not enough shoes in stores. There's not enough uh, chips for, for cars for, for, for all these businesses to be able to keep up with demand. And so what happens? Prices go up. And so that takes us to today where uh, we have this extraordinary inflation problem. And, and since the beginning of the year, you have a Fed that's uh, increasingly tightening monetary policy in their efforts to fight this. And then, you know, you, you, you mentioned the Fed there a little bit. I, I imagine we'll spend quite, a, a, quite some time there. But, you know, over the last decade or so, especially, you know, this was accelerated a little bit uh, during COVID, but the Fed's been very supportive of, um, you know, markets at large, yep. uh, primarily through, you know, their key policy rate, which they've kept at or near zero for the balance of uh, time since the global financial crisis, and then certainly had to aggressively get back there during COVID. Um, what have they done over the last couple of uh, you know months or so, looking backwards, um, to help side to combat some of these things? There's obviously only so much that they can and cannot control. Maybe walk everyone through a little bit about what their their approach has been thus far. Yeah, you know the Fed, you know of course is this incredibly incredibly powerful organization that you know has the ability to influence uh, interest rates. Um, the strange thing about it is that's really all that they can do. They don't really have like the tools to go into a particular industry and say, you know, I want to, you know, stimulate the, the semiconductor industry, or I'm going to do something with, with energy prices or, you know, convince some people to drill some more holes in, you know, the shale basins or whatever. They can't do that. All they can do is either tighten or loosen financial conditions. So the cost of borrowing either goes up or the cost of borrowing either goes down. And so, you know, since the beginning of the year, uh, uh, you know, they've, they've, tapered their quantitative easing programs, which takes a little bit of uh, stimulus out of the, the bond markets. And, uh, and they've also been raising interest rates. They're expected to raise interest rates again today. Um, 
and you know all all of this is essentially doing whatever they can they're doing whatever they can to just get people uh to to slow down a little bit in their purchases and investments and stuff so that uh hopefully uh you know like we said before um demand gets pulled back enough so that it starts to get in line with supply and then hopefully that brings some relief to relief to inflation so you know a lot of the things we're talking about are are kind of you know again as you mentioned um you know, more like Ecom 101. Yeah. Uh, but certainly we're seeing this play out quite a bit in equity market performance, particularly here in the U.S. And again, just trying to look backwards a little bit before we transition to, sure. to what maybe uh, some drivers are to come. But, you know, inflation runs a little bit high. Um, okay, completely understood. And certainly the Fed has to take some actions to try to taper that, or if nothing else, at least bring down expectations for where inflation goes. Um, why, has the, why have equity markets um, reacted so poorly to this news um, overall? Um, yeah, so I, I think there's a couple of different ways uh, of thinking about it, and it's all negative, by the way. It, it's it's all negative. Um, well, I, actually, I'll, I'll start with a positive thing first. Um, the Fed, I don't think, would have been comfortable with, you know, tapering QE and raising interest rates and all this stuff if it didn't think that the economy had some momentum. So, so let's start from that point of view, in that the economy had momentum and. On the stock market side, uh, earnings have been at record levels, and earnings are still expected to grow. So, so we'll start from from that standpoint. From there, everything goes south, right? Um, if we want to get deep into theory very briefly without getting too wonky, um, when you start raising interest rates, you know the cost of financing, cost of capital, that stuff goes up, and the future, the the present value of future cash flows, all things being equal, are worth a little less. Uh, in the present day. And so all things being equal, higher interest rates mean lower stock valuations. So that's the first thing that's going to hit uh, markets. Do people really think in, in those kinds of theories? Uh, I don't know. It, it's, it's possible, but that's a good justification for why stock prices come down. The second thing is just the mechanics of the financial markets, right? If the Fed is tightening my, uh, financial conditions, pulling money, pulling liquidity out of, out of the bond markets, and suddenly uh, there's a little less buying going on out there. And so if there's less people buying in the, in the bond markets, that gives people less money to you know, buy other things in other areas of the financial markets. And so just the, the, the extraction of, of liquidity is going to put some more negative pressure on the stock markets. And then this whole idea of you know, using monetary policy and monetary tools to slow the economy um, well, yeah, that's, that's bad, right? All the it's like we started with, you know, the the cost of capital and the interest rates and how that that fits into financial modeling. The other part of financial modeling is growth, right? Revenue growth, profit margin growth, earnings growth. Uh, if you have an entity like the Fed and global central banks like actively attacking that top line, then suddenly all those cash flows that get, are getting discounted back to the present day are shrinking. And so you sort of have like a double whammy effect there. And so, um, yeah, it makes sense that stock prices would, would pull back a little bit. And you mentioned, you know, um, quite a bit of, of um, some really key fundamental drivers that certainly, I think, impact um, people's uh, perceptions of equities, especially over longer time horizons. When you start thinking about you know what's happening more on a day-to-day basis slash week-to-week, which maybe is a little bit more short-term than some of those other factors that really take a long time to play out, right? When you think about earnings, earnings growth, revenue growth, typically you know you have some indications intra-quarter, but for the most part you really get you know um, the facts quarter over quarter. So you know even think about intra-quarter movements. What would you say are some of the really big drivers right now for why 
Um, again, we've seen, for lack of a better term, a really large risk-off sentiment um, across things, especially risk assets like um, like equities. I mean, I think you know, it, it's I think it's just this concern that things might be worse than expected. Um, you know, if there's anything worse than just actual bad news for the stock market and stock prices, is it's uncertainty. Like, you might think that there is a rosy scenario that's, you know, a year ahead or two years ahead or whatever, but um, as long as uncertainty is there, if you just don't know uh, what's actually gonna happen, then bad news can actually, or, or uncertainty can actually be worse than bad news. And, you know, I, I think one of the, the things that sort of really kicked all this off, and, and this goes back to last Friday with, with the Consumer Price Index report that we were talking about, um, you know, that was higher than the March report, which everyone thought was supposed to be quote unquote peak inflation. And so it just calls into question what, you know, everybody had concluded a few months ago. And so, yeah, you have uncertainty that's being reintroduced and uh, very aggressively in the markets. And, and so, yeah, people just don't feel good about that and you're going to sell. So, you know, this is something and, and maybe gets a little bit more into some of the behavioral components. That's always interesting, right? And um, arguably, um, most folks would have, I would imagine, a, verily, a relatively positive uh point of view on where things might be a year from now, yep. let's say. And I think most folks feel as though, um, you know, and again, always uncertainty. I guess where, where I'm trying to go with this is just more like institutions, long-term investors, uh, they tend to also be very much participants in yep. selling. It's not just retail per se. So with some of those more astute investors, having seen, probably lived through and traded through quite a bit of different um, you know, market environments. How come when these things happen, they seem to all also be selling, yeah. um, as opposed to just knowing that things are going to recover, um, you know, especially when you think about three, five, 10 years from now, obviously the likelihood of markets, the economy and everything right. being a better spot are increased, although not certain, or not guaranteed rather. Right, I mean, you know, it, it's sort of, uh, you know, people will trade with their hearts and not with their heads, right? Uh, you know, there's, hundreds of years of, of, of uh, financial, not just financial market history, but economic history and social history. And there's, all, there's been all kinds of terrible things that have happened even in the last hundred years. Like, you know, we don't need to talk, well, we, yeah, we could talk about, you know, stuff like, you know, World War II and the Cuban Missile Crisis. You had a president that's been assassinated. Like, this is crazy. Like, there's some insane stuff. And not to mention the fact that, you know, just in the last two years, uh, you know, over a million people have died from, you know, the coronavirus. So this is like incredibly bad stuff. And yet today the economy is, and the stock market and earnings and all this stuff, uh, standards of livings and all, all those things are much better than they were, you know, before all those bad things happen. So, but, you know, at the end of the day, when you just don't feel good in the moment, it's, you, you can't help but, uh, uh, get a little bit concerned. And at the very least, you know, I don't think it's necessarily people who are permanently trying to exit the financial markets because it just doesn't work for them anymore. But uh, everyone, uh, I, I think with, with behavioral finance, there's, uh, you know, after you see the markets go down a little bit, and then in the back of your head, back of your mind, you're thinking, well, it could get worse, couldn't it? And all those concerns have been confirmed since the beginning of the year, and it's only been confirmed confirmed, you know, as, as the year has gone on. And so, you know, I'm not sure if, I mean, yeah, it's, it's probably kind of like a gambling mentality of this idea that, you know, I can probably, you know, stem my short-term losses and get in 
lower at some point. And um, you know, it, it's not just short-term traders who think like that. Um, if if you're seeing your your retirement savings, you know, fall by twenty percent, but then you know, history says that the average bear market is down, you know, between thirty and forty percent. Well, why not pull out a little bit now, and you know, maybe sort of dip back in a, a little bit later. So, you know, it, it's, it's really hard to judge. I mean, you know, even the people who keep their money in the markets will tell you that, you know, they can't sleep at night because, you know, it just feels terrible. But, um, but then again, as soon as you, you, you sell, you have to make that other decision of, you know, when do you buy? <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I, I think, I think there, there is a, a, a massive uh, sort of um, uh, behavioral component to this. And even at the institutional level, you know, maybe it's not behavior, but, you know, when it comes to stuff like liquidity, when it comes to uh, who your clients are, eventually, you know, you, you, you go for, you, you follow the money far enough down the, the, the financial investment chain or whatever. At, at some point, there are people tied to even the money that, that you know, pension funds and endowments and, and hedge funds or whatever are invested in. And, and, and those people are going to be asking, you know, why did you lose so much money in Q1? Why did you lose so much money in Q2? Um, and and the, even the institutional uh, asset managers have to answer those questions. So then, um, you know, pivoting a little bit here towards uh, what, what's, what's expected to come today. So, you know, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, what some of the drivers are of the uncertainty, right? Inflation's running very high. What does that mean and pretend for corporate earnings as well as also just the, the economy at large? The consumer still appears to be quite healthy. Um, and I know there's a lot of debate here around, you know, what tends to happen uh, in the post-global financialist world where is the Fed here to serve Main Street, Wall Street? How do they do it? And certainly um, everyone's impacted uh, by equity markets and financial markets, but certainly... Um, you know, what happens in financial markets doesn't always equate to what's going on uh, in the economy overall. So as we sit here today, the Fed's uh, expected to uh, conclude their meetings and also provide some updated policy. And also, I believe they're doing some economic forecasts for, um, you know, that they do on a quarterly basis projecting out. So with that in mind, you know, what are some of the Fed's options? And also, you know, how do you think that the market is going to receive some of them? Knowing, you know, how much of this does Powell now need to shock, awe, and overcompensate for maybe uh, a little bit of a slow pickup in terms of um, combating inflation versus how much does he have to go back to the messaging that not even a, you know, a couple of weeks or months ago, he was saying that there's no real chance for a 75 basis point hike, let's say. Right, right. So I think there's sort of, um, there, there's the, the short term and then the longer term implications of, of what what might happen today. Um, short term, it's, 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 you know, I always hate to have to fall back on this sort of notion of like, you know, you can't really know for sure exactly what's going to happen. Like, I, I think it's so much more uh, a, a concern that's pronounced today because because here's the thing, you know, before a couple of months ago, um, this idea of easy money and a dovish Fed and dovish monetary policy uh, was considered stimulative and it's good news uh, for the economy and good news for the stock market, good news for liquidity and financial markets and asset prices go up. Um, with this idea of a more dovish than expected Fed. Um, this year, the, the message from the Fed has been very, very, very clear, and he repeats it at the FOMC conferences, that he repeats it at uh, you know, uh, media engagements, and, and all the Fed governors and Fed presidents say all, you know, all of the same thing. 
And it's not until inflation, you know, uh, I forgot exactly what the phrase was, you know, uh, slows down in a, a clear and consistent kind of way um, that, that they're going to continue being aggressive with monetary policy. So especially with the last couple of days with, with the CPI report coming in a little bit hotter than expected, the question is, what is the right amount of aggressiveness? Um, going into this meeting for the last couple of weeks, um, the expectation was for a 50 basis point you know, rate hike, which, you know, if you asked anybody that, you know, a year ago, that's unbelievably hawkish. Uh, now, if you ask anybody in the last three or four days, that's not enough. Um, if anything, 50 basis points could be dovish. But what does that mean? Well, if, you know, it used to be the case that if it's dovish, then it's stimulative to financial markets and stock markets go up, right? But that's actually not the narrative now. If it's too dovish, then the risk is inflation runs rampant. And that's actually bearish because then if we do get a higher inflation reading, then the Fed has to come back and get even more hawkish, which is bad news for, for financial markets in the long run. I mean, this is kind of an insane conversation that we're having, but that that's sort of like, you know, reflects the level of uncertainty, right? I think the fact that, you know, we have to think in terms of 3D chess and like the fifth dimension or whatever uh, when it comes to, you know, what's going on with, with uh uh, monetary policy right now, you know, is part of that sort of uncertainty premium that's going into to financial markets. So having said all of that, um, it, it's it's really it, it's it's bizarre to sort of speculate, but you know, there's a there's a thinking there that you know if they are too dovish or if it's interpreted as too dovish, then the markets will struggle. If the rate hikes are are on the higher end then you know suddenly you have confidence in this financial institution that's that's going to you know is really at war with inflation and that makes people feel good and so maybe uh, an increasingly hawkish fed is the kind of thing that gets the stock markets and financial markets you know go risk on very interesting i, I want to actually uh, peel back on that a little bit more right because um what I think most folks probably know by now is, um, you know, information in the past really is is absolutely meaningless uh, for the most part to the direction right. of the markets. Everything's around what your expectations are and, and what the outcomes are right. relative to those expectations. Um, but to your point about, you know, um, how the market would react to different environments, um, you know, particularly, as I mentioned, Powell was on record not really ever putting on the table anything above 50 basis points. And now it seems as though it's fairly probabilistic at this point. Sure. How much does, you know, a sequential 75 basis point hike or so um, increase the probability that the Fed has to induce a recession? And then how do you think the market reacts to that? Or do you think the market's already pricing in a recession, given the um, expectations they have about the, the required, um, you know, Fed funds curve? Yeah, well, I think, I think for starters, um, uh, you start by saying, well, we already know that the stock market is down 20%, and we already know that interest rates are up. You know, we had two yield curve inversions. There's all kinds of things that are already telling you that expectations for a recession uh, are either completely priced in or are largely priced in. Um, and so, you know, really, the question just comes down to, uh, I mean, everything, whether it's the Fed or supply demand, all this stuff, you know, everything always is, is right now is just all coming back to, um, you know, do we, as markets or policymakers or whomever, uh, uh, you know, are we confident that you know inflation is actually under control? 
right? Because that's really the thing that's going to drive all the Fed's decisions. So, you know, the cause is not, you know, Fed policy and Fed hiking. The cause is all everything to do with inflation, and, and Fed policy is a consequence of what's going on with the data. So, um, you know, if, if uh, the, the Fed can talk about 75 basis points, it can talk about 100 basis points, it can talk about whatever, but it's not until the data comes back and says that, you know, inflation ratings are actually starting to cool that, you know, I, I, that I believe uh, markets start to get confident, uh, investors get confident, and those uncertainty premiums start to come down. Um, and as far as the recession risk is concerned, yeah, the recession, there's, there's a high risk that we go into recession. Um, but of course, there's a lot of nuance there too, right? Like, you know, recession uh, two years ago meant, you know, GDP tanking and corporate profits you know, falling 50%. But, you know, a recession by definition can be something where, uh, yeah, you have a, a, a couple percentage points taken off of GDP and a couple percentage points taken off of corporate earnings. And unemployment rate uh, goes from extremely low to slightly less extremely low because if the unemployment rate is rising, then, you know, maybe things are receding. The recession doesn't have to be terrible. It's, there's certainly, I, I think the risks of, of a recession are going up and, you know, as the Fed is actively trying to cool demand. Um, uh, it's likely that we do go into a recession. But I think the mo more important question is, is you know, how bad do things actually get? And I think uh, most folks would agree, and I think even you know, a lot of uh, the more uh, cautious folks would agree that you know, the next recession isn't going to look like the financial crisis or the COVID crisis or, or something much worse than that. So we... we we have spent a lot of time talking about inflation, and you mentioned, you know, the the required um, or likely need for the data to confirm that things are at least starting to um, decelerate and or trend down mm. over and over. Um, I'm curious, um, two parts there. One, obviously, you know, uh, there's some base effects there, right? As right. Um, you know, looking back to one year from now versus next month, obviously, like you know, you're, you're We've seen inflation increase so much year over year that you're already coming off a really high base. Right. So how much of that matters and what are some of the other things that they look for? But maybe before going there, um, you could talk to everyone a little bit about how the Fed perceives inflation in terms particularly about, you know, we've seen core CPI, for example, right. although the Fed prefers uh, core PCE, right. but they've seen core CPI start to trend down, yet headline uh, inflation, which includes energy and food prices and probably impacts consumers right. even more, right. is still continuing to accelerate. How do they think about that divergence? Right. Um, and then maybe you can address the first part a little bit after. Yeah. So I think a nuance that's often missed about the inflation discussion is, uh, you know, like you're talking about stuff like base effects and just the, the levels of prices, right? Um, you know, we can have inflation cool to, you know, 2% or whatever. Um, what does that actually mean? Well, it doesn't mean that gas prices are going to go from, you know, $5 a gallon to $4 or $3 a gallon. It just means that gas prices aren't growing uh, as much as they have been. So, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of inflation coming down, you know, people should, you know, sort of manage their expectations there. You know, price levels might actually stay very high and, and you know, we might have to get used to $5 gasoline for a really long time. But what really matters there, though, um, you know, is, is on the sort of the wage and income side, right? Uh, you know, in an economy where, where uh, those higher levels of prices are sustainable, well, it, it's only sustainable if people can afford to pay them, right? Um, and this is why we're seeing, you know, wage growth. Everyone's giving raises, uh, low-income jobs. You know, it's it, you know, 
I, I don't know, you can get $20 an hour now working at a fast food restaurant, um, which is great. Um, but also those folks will also tell you that, well, gosh, you know, after paying for gasoline prices, you know, I'm still where I was, you know, before. Um, so as, as far as that, that's concerned, um, you know, the, 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 yeah, base effects will come into play um, and certainly should make uh, it uh, easier for inflation to pull back. Um, but again, you know, that, that, that's all assuming um, that, that, you know, supply chain pressures and, and, and things like that that have been driving inflation, um, you know, eventually begin to, to ease a little bit. Um, and, and that's the other thing, too, um, to, to remember. Uh, it, it's not just about slowing demand. I mean, this is what the Fed is actively trying to do to, to get inflation in line. But the other way of getting to a world where inflation does cool is, is, is if those supply chains loosen up, right? If suddenly, you know, some of those 11 million job openings get filled by, you know, a couple of a million people who are on the sidelines of the labor force right now. If those people go back, then suddenly, you know, restaurants are fully staffed. Uh, you know, there are more pilots flying planes. The hotels have more people cleaning rooms so that they could turn uh, uh, guests over much uh, more quickly. And then, and then, you know, maybe uh, home builders are able to find people to do the construction. Um, all those things on the supply side, if, if, if that stuff starts loosening up, then, you know, we don't need to see demand slow. And suddenly, the, you know, the Fed can start to take its foot off the gas pedal a little bit. And, you know, again, that all just comes back to this whole matter of, you know, it's not about the Fed and how good they are at, you know, tightening monetary policy. But it's just a question of, you know, does inflation come down and what are the, what are the paths to getting inflation back to cooler levels? So just to, to kind of um, just just put a little bit of a, a bow on that, if that makes sense, but uh, or if this makes sense, but um, how much does going to a recession not only lead or potentially lead not only to slowing inflation, but potentially any deflationary uh, environments overall, if really the demand side really gets sapped up here, yeah. um, just with people potentially losing jobs or anything else, you know, kind of corollary to a recession? Sure. I mean, you know, I think the, the risk of prices actually falling are, are, are probably a lot higher than people think. Um, you know, we just had a couple of years of, of every company in business complaining about not having enough stuff uh, to put in, in, in their, their storage closets and their, you know, inventory rooms and all of this stuff. Um, but, you know, you have a couple of really sort of disturbing anecdotes from companies like as big as Target and Walmart um, and these big retailers saying that, you know, we, we bought too much stuff and, uh, you know, earning, we have to cut our earnings guidance because we're going to have to start cutting prices on this stuff. So people who are shopping at Target and Walmart, you know, uh, whether they say it or not, they're going to start experiencing deflation in those areas. So, um, you know, hopefully uh, that translates to people um, feeling a little bit better about their spending situation and feeling a little bit more confident that their, um, that their spending power hasn't been eroded completely. Um, but, you know, the really frightening scenario, you know, when it comes to stuff like deflation is, um, if people start seeing prices fall and it's for something that you don't have to buy tomorrow, then maybe you stand back and say, wait a second, um, this has gotten, you know, 10% cheaper in just the last week. What if I wait another week and it gets, falls another 10% or another 5% or whatever? Um, you know, I don't, I think it's way too early to sort of speculate in that kind of direction, but, you know, those sort of deflationary spirals, you know, end up becoming a lot more terrifying because that's a lot start harder to stem than, than, you know, inflation where you just, you know, 
hike rates and slam the economy, right? So then as we sit here now, uh, it's roughly 12 o'clock or so, the day of the Fed meeting. Um, you know, what are, what are some of your thoughts here for what you think their actions are? And what do you think, um, you know, some of the price action is, uh, let's say, for equity markets over the course of the next uh, three, six, nine months or so? Right. Um, so I think that, you know, next three, six, nine months for the stock market, equity markets, or, you know, just risk assets in general, or anything that's tied to, you know, financing a business. So it could be debt or credit, whatever. Um, there is a, there's basically a cap in that, uh, you know, the Fed does not want interest rates to come down. The Fed does not want the dollar to weaken. The Fed does not want stock prices to go up because all that stuff means financing is getting easier and that in one way or another is uh, stimulative to an economy from a demand perspective and that's more bad news for inflation. So I think the Fed is going to come out and sort of reiterate its uh, you know, commitment to, to, to seeing inflation uh, again, I forgot what the phrase was, but I think he, Powell said clear and consistently um, uh, uh, sort of cool off from these extraordinarily high levels. Um, and just to add there, for, for folks listening, um, I think it goes a little bit uh, underappreciated how purposeful yeah. every word is of every, especially Fed statement, yeah. but also most of the time in press conferences because every word has so much uh, implications that everything is so carefully worded each time, and that's why you see statements with the slightest modification, yeah. and that can mean all the world of differences. Yeah. Oh. Oh my God. I remember um, uh, about a year ago when when uh, the inflation really started picking up. Uh, you know, we all remember when when uh, the Fed started putting the word transitory in all their statements, and oh God, there was such a gigantic uproar um, about what this means, and and it's it divided America, thinking you know is tr in, uh, inflation transitory versus not transitory. And I remember at, at one of his uh, press conferences, uh, you know, he reiterated his, his position that, you know, inflation is transitory, but he said temporary. And then all these research notes from, you know, Fed watchers and, you know, linguists and all this stuff were trying to dissect the nuances between the difference between temporary and transitory. So, so yeah, uh, language is uh, incredibly uh, important and, and nuanced here. But, um, you know, sort of getting back to another thing uh, regarding, you know, what the language is going to look like today um, and how that can change. Um, one of the things that, that uh, uh, the Fed said pretty explicitly at the last press conference was when they were being asked about things like 75 basis point rate hikes. And I think they, uh, someone actually explicitly asked about 75 basis point rate hikes. Um, the response was, we are not actively discussing 75 basis point rate hikes. Now, of course, that's just the moment in time, and they could have begun discussing that afterwards. Um, but I think um, stuff like you know, 75 basis point rate hikes, whether or not they happen today, um, 100 basis point rate hikes. Someone, you know, if, if any of these Fed reporters are getting paid anything to do anything, someone is going to ask the question, you know, do you guys discuss 100 basis point rate hikes? And the answer to a question like that could be incredibly impactful um, when it comes to financial markets. Um, you know, is it that they're too hawkish and is it that they're panicked and maybe that causes markets to sell off? Or do markets interpret it as you know being confident in this this uh, organization that's going to do whatever it takes to get inflation down, and maybe markets rally on on such news? Um, 
you know, I, I guess we'll see after the press conference, but, um, you know, it's going to be riveting to, to watch. So with that, Sam, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, and of course, thank you to all of our listeners. And remember to visit Yuletreat.com to learn more about some of our offerings. And of course, subscribe to our YouTube channel so you never miss a show. Thank you and see you next week. Support for this podcast comes from Yield Street. Trying to time the stock market can lead to regret. At Yield Street, our alternative investments are designed to create predictable secondary income streams, providing you with tools to help put your money to work immediately. These investments in asset classes like art, real estate, and legal finance typically have low correlation with the stock market and target annual yields up to 7 to 10%. Welcome to the next generation of investing. Welcome to Yield Street. Sign up today at YieldStreet.com.